record company's business model is that they give you some money, they pay you a royalty, that royalty might represent 15% of the income, and then they charge every expense against that 15%. So therefore, the artist is never going to see any money. Welcome to this week's episode of Decoded, where the most intriguing people in business, finance, and investing share insights that we can apply to our own lives. Today, Ryan Pallotta talks with Ron Sweeney, entertainment attorney, manager, consultant, and former record executive. Ron Sweeney may be the biggest music industry legend you've never heard of. Named one of the top music lawyers by Billboard magazine, Ron has brokered major deals for artists like James Brown, Easy e Sean Puffy Combs, and Lil Wayne. As a senior executive with Sony, Ron controlled a $70 million A&R budget and was directly responsible for signing several platinum and gold-selling acts. Ron is driven by his strong belief that creative people should own what they create. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, Ron helped to bring about meaningful change in an industry that has exploited people of color since its beginning. Ron's story exemplifies the power of relationship building and identifying opportunities. These two concepts are at the core of the Prometheus platform, where any user can interact with some of the brightest minds in our industry, learn from them, and grow their investment knowledge. Get an exclusive invite for Prometheus at prometheusalts.com. And now, here's our talk with Ron Sweeney. Ron, I'm so excited to have you on. You've had such a legendary career working with some of the best people in music. I, I've worked in music for a long time, and you know, you've worked with people from Michael Jackson to Eazy E, some in, in, inspiring people. I'd love to know a little bit about you. You did you always intend to get involved in music? You started out as a lawyer. How did you go from you know law school becoming a lawyer to working in the music industry? Uh, actually I started off as a drummer. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I, um, I was a drummer here in LA, uh, a very good drummer. <laughs> so you're good at timing. You're good. The drummer's supposed to be the best in the world at time. Well, uh, I would say to you that according to a friend of mine, Henry Garner, who's the drummer was the drummer for Rolls Royce, who I taught how to play. Uh, recently, no he told me that I was like the number two drummer in L.A. around that time. That's amazing. I literally did not apply to, to college after high school. Because you were so sure you were going to be a drummer. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's all I wanted to do. You know, and um, my mother came in one day and said, you got three choices. Go to school, get a job or get out. <laughs> that's a pretty big ultimatum. Yeah, that's how wow. I ended up in college. Cal State Northridge just happened to be still accepting applications for that January. So mm -hmm. from, you know, I graduated in June, didn't do the first semester. And then I went, I started at uh, Cal State Northridge. And then right shortly after there, they created the drum machine. I think it was like 1972. And uh, all of a sudden the session work uh, dried up and, you know, Early on as a kid watching Perry Mason, I said I wanted to be a, a, a lawyer. And so anyway, I, I ended up uh, transferring to UCLA. Then I graduated from USC Law School. What was it about Perry Mason Law that inspired you? You know, courtroom drama. 
Yeah. The challenge, the intellectual challenge of trying to make sure you figure out a way by any means necessary to win. Love that. It was just. So the drum machine kind of made drummers obsolete. Is that what it did? You know, everybody wanted to use the drum machine. And, and this went on for a while. Uh, nobody mm -hmm. wanted to use live drums anymore. And, you know, one of, one of the other things, too, truthfully, I knew I didn't have the heart. I was the guy in the band that booked the dates. I was the guy that, you know, did all the business. And uh, mm -hmm. I, my band decided to go to uh, New York, but nobody knew where they were going to stay. They just said, we're going. And I'm not that kind of guy. <laughs> I got to know how, when, why, you know, the whole nine yards. So yeah. I, I ended up getting serious. And then um, I got into USC Law School and um, there was a guy, by the, a lawyer by the name of um, Joseph Porter, who uh, was a fraternity brother of mine who I'd never met. An older fraternity brother got him to write a letter of recommendation for me to get into USC. And so for two and a half years, I tried to reach out to him, never could get him on the phone. And in my last semester of law school, I was severely depressed because I knew I did not want to be a litigator. I knew I didn't want to conform and act like, you know, how they say lawyers should act. Uh, I didn't want to mm -hmm. wear wingtip shoes. I didn't want to wear, you know, no pun intended, <laughs> horn um, rim glasses and, and have to talk away a, diff a certain way. I mean, I was a drummer, just freak, right? So I just decided, yeah. um, you know, I was depressed. I went, I ended up going to an entertainment law seminar at lunchtime. Mm. It was D. Anthony, who was back then Peter Frampton's manager. After oh, wow. he had that, we had that, he had to talk, you know, a light bulb lit up and I, and I went and called Joseph Porter and, and he answered the phone. No secretary, no nothing. So I quickly told him that I could come work for him for free and get credit from school. He said, come in. And, you know, I ended up working with him. Uh, he represented at the time George Benson, Larry the, uh, and Larry and Fonce Mizell, who at the time had Taste of Honey. There was a big act mm -hmm. called Santa Esmeralda. And he also represented a, 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 a guy by the name of Clarence Avon. And oh, so wow. that's yeah. how I got into the music business. Was there something about the music business and entertainment that drew you to it that was different than doing any other type of law? What was it about working with artists? You know, when when you work with artists, you know, again, I come from a creative background. Mm -hmm. And it's just something about creativity that fascinates me. And, um, you know, the mind fascinates me. And, you know, I, I just enjoy creative people because... When you get around real creative people, they're very pure. You know, they're, they're just mm -hmm. about their music. They're about their craft. And uh, it was back then, it was very, very enjoyable. So how do you go from, you know, interning and working underneath, you know, a mentor like that to representing some of the biggest artists in the world? Like you've worked with people from P. Diddy, DMX, Lil Wayne, Young Money, Easy E, Michael Jackson, like everybody, like how does somebody go from, you know, starting out in the entertainment industry? And what was like your first big break? Do you remember like that first big client or how you um, kind of broke out? Yeah, I, I, I would say my, actually my first big break 
was I, I was in 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 the office by myself at Joseph Porter's mm-hmm. office, and uh, a guy called called up, mad, cursing like a storm. I mean, really cursing to the point that I had to curse back and tell him, I don't know who this is, but I, you, I don't allow anybody to talk to me like that. It turned out <laughs> to be Clarence Avon. Okay, wow. So Clarence Avon came and said, you know, I want to meet you. And he came over to the office and we <laughs> ended up um, sitting there for about five years. He was fascinated with my background because I actually I I'm one of those guys that really grew up in the hood in South Central L.A. You know. Yeah. What was that like? You so you grew up from a young age, you know, in South Central L.A. What what neighborhood there? I grew up near. Um, you know, you ever hear? Remember the Reginald Denny um, beating that took place in South Central mm-hmm. L.A. and then they, the yeah. fires. Yeah. You know, everybody. It, it was Super a riot. Caused a lot of riots after that. A lot of uh, yeah. That was my protests. people out. That was my paper oh, wow. route, Florence Avenue. No way. So, wow. so um, you know, when I grew up, you know, you don't know, you don't know that you're poor. You live in, you know, yeah. you live in the hood, you live in the bubble. You know, everybody's doing the same thing. You know, the two biggest guys in the neighborhood were was the uh, post office guy who had a job, and and the drug dealer. You know, those were the two. Those were the guys who had new cars. Those, you know, those were the guys that, um, um, you know. Uh, had you saw some signs of wealth yeah yeah but it's interesting the signs of wealth that you see are almost you know they're drug dealers or they're people that are doing things by not the right way and that's the only sign of wealth that you see in that neighborhood growing up yeah yeah so you know i I did some work with a comma in watts i don't know if you know watts is like in that same area and we did some work with a project sorry go ahead no, I was going to tell you when I was born, I was living, my my mother was living in Watts. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, it's it's almost like there's people are set up to fail. We did some work with an organization called Red Eye where um, this amazing guy, Justin Mayo, he will take a lot of people, young people from Hollywood, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, and bring them down to Watts to try to mentor some of the kids there. And we'll do big events um, for a lot of the kids there. He got the Kardashians to donate a bunch of stuff and took over the community center there at Imperial Watts Community Center um, because you know they need some mentorship from people that aren't from that area. You know you're set up to fail living amongst this highway. You can't really get out of there that easily, and the only th- stores around you are fast food chains and you know, you know strip malls. So liquor it's, uh, store very difficult. For, yeah, yeah. In, in liquor stores and you know grocery stores and things like that. So it's very difficult for them to find mentorship to find something uh, outside of there. Um, so it's interesting that, how do you think that you were able to find the aspiration to move out of a situation like that? Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I, I, I was a paper boy and, you know, after I threw the, through the, you know, did my route, I'd go home and read the paper and I was just fascinated by different things that I was reading and, you know, all these things you never saw, um, around me, you know, um, you know, yeah. I tell people that, um, it's truly a bubble because you don't know you're in that bubble. It's just a way of life. You're in that yeah. bubble and you don't know anything else. And so, um, yeah. especially pre social media, you know, you really didn't have a way to look through a window and see anything else. 
And so the only thing you saw really is what what you could read or what you saw on the TV. And that was it. And so um, um, as I read things, I was just fascinated. And then, you know, I grew up in a house where at any given time there were between 10 to 15 people living in a two bedroom, one bath house. Wow. So oh my God. that in itself was incentive to get the <laughs> hell out of there. <laughs> that's wild yeah <laughs> i'm sure especially as like an aspiring drummer drumming in a house with um how did you even get access to drums and music and the teacher you know growing up in something like that like we talked about how you're in this bubble so um you know i i tell people i became a man at 12 i didn't have i i, I didn't have a father um wow. but i had i i had three other brothers and a sister all younger than me and so I started helping financially at the age of 12. So 12 years um, old. You're well, kidding me. So um, mm. I can tell you I worked at a liquor store. My first paycheck, I knew nothing about taxes and FICA and all of that. <laughs> uh, I worked all these extra hours, man. And uh, my first paycheck, they gave it to me. I looked at it. I went into the cooler, you know, and the, the, back then in the cooler, you'd be back there stocking the, you know, the sodas mm -hmm. and the uh, milk and what have you. Man, I went in there and cried like a baby. You know, I had <laughs> no idea about taxes or, you know, all of Well, you worked for the Internal Revenue Agency. You worked for the IRS at some point. So maybe so it all came full circle. On. But this is <laughs> yeah. later on. But right, right then and there, I had already made plans with my money and, and it was gone. <laughs> That's it's already ninety percent of it's gone. Hey, that—that's when I first learned of my gangster partner. I call the Internal <laughs> Revenue my gangster partners because they're going to get theirs, you know. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I, I uh, threw papers, collect sold bottles. I ended up working at Kmart uh, wow. in the shoe department. Um, I always had to work, you know. So it was uh, there was no options. So um, the more I did that, the more I knew this wasn't a way of life that I wanted to continue. So I tried to started figuring out how I was going to how I was going to get out. Drumming was just, you know, I was just in another world. It was like the greatest thing ever. Um, felt free and just knew I was going to become a famous drummer. How do you even get exposed to something like that, though? Like, do you have listened to records and that inspired you? That school, I'm sure didn't have a music program. How do oh, no, you no, no, get exposed no. to the contrary? I went to Washington high school. If you saw that movie lean on me, that's my high school. Uh, back then they actually had a really good band program. Out of my high school came uh, um, three recording acts that actually went on to, to fame. You know, some played with Shaka Khan. You had, uh, Rolls Royce, uh, Click, Side Effect. These were people that played in the band with me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we had instruments and everything. None of that exists now. But back then, that's the one thing that they did have. And so back then you had an option. You could um, do gym or, do, or be in the band. So, you know, obviously I, I was always in the band. Oh, wow. And drumming, you just kind of like fell to it and realized that that was kind of what was going to make you famous. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's something about uh, creativity that, you, you know, you, you're just free. You know, you, you're oblivious mm -hmm. to everything else going on because you're just enjoying what you're doing, you know.
I can't imagine. How did you build like the mental resiliency to, you know, be a man at 12, lead the, like, you know, provide for your family, start working, you know, how do you do that as a 12 year old? You guys, you didn't know much better. I did. I had no choice. Had no choice. And, you know, because I grew up with a fa- without a father, I'm convinced that not having that around helped me because, you know, my mother would always tell me I could do whatever I wanted to do if I decide. Mm-hmm. And um, I never had anyone telling me I couldn't do it. So, you know, my attitude was, let me go try this. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, I'm, you know. It just means uh, uh, in, in trying to buy something, it just means I got to make more money. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like that you look at it like a positive thing. You know, look at the the positiveness of not having your father around and how that benefited you as opposed to how you could have been if you had a father around and what would have been different. And, you know, you looked at the positive side of it and used it to your advantage. Well, and, and just know I didn't think like that back then. As I got older, uh-huh. you know, I got wiser and realized <laughs> that that actually turned out to be a blessing. <laughs> yeah, it was your it was your advantage. Not, it was your edge on other people that you worked harder. I didn't have anybody telling me, don't do this, don't do that. I didn't have anybody telling me you can't, you know, you know, there are limitations because of the color of your skin or whatever, whatever. I just went mm-hmm. and did whatever I wanted to do. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, fortunately, that, most of the time it worked. <laughs> Did the, yeah, it seems like it worked really well for you. Did that fearlessness, you know, that you developed from just going and doing whatever it took to survive kind of help when you started working with some of these, you know, intimidating artists at the time, like Easy and some of these, you know, people that you were representing and you're doing deals for them and you're pretty new at this. Like, how did that help your career at that point? You know, I told you about Clarence Avon. Mm-hmm. Clarence um, basically let me run his companies. And so I was making, you know, we would talk, I was making decisions. Um, and um, he was, a, he was a fairly powerful guy. And I just learned how to use it to my advantage, you know, in terms of doing business with him for him. And, um, you know, because of my musical background, I literally A&R'd my clients, meaning I didn't take on just any client. You know, I, I made mm-hmm. sure that client was worthy of uh, making an investment in because no no established acts were coming to me. Everybody was new. Climax was a new act. From Climax, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis produced them. And uh, Terry Lewis came to me afterwards and said, hey, you know, based on how you did what you did, I want you to represent us. So I started representing Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And their career just took off. I mean, to give you an example, we we um, produced eight Janet Jackson records. You know, they're the ones no who, wow. yeah. With Clarence, we had the SOS band, Sherelle, um, Alexander O'Neill. And um, again, he let me do my thing. And um, I had- I Were you coming to this- were you as their lawyer or their manager? And how did that, how did you work with their existing team? Or do you, did you start just managing and there being their attorney at the same time? So, you know, you know, I was the attorney. I was, I was officially Climax's manager with um, Clarence and you know, Clarence Avon and, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I handled all the business, whether it was legal or otherwise, I handled it all. 
And so, you know, I got a chance to learn as you go. And there, you know, candidly, there were times I was shooting from the hip. <laughs> you're just faking it till you make it. Yeah, fake. Yeah, I'm still doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so, like I said, I was blessed because I, I ended up picking the right people to be involved in, and we had an we had an incredible run. I mean, if you go look at uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, you'll see a number. We 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 did a number of deals, really great deals, and then. You know, I started picking up different people. Um, and then afterwards, there was a point in my career where I went from being banned out of the CBS Records building for 10 days to Whoa, coming to me, asking me to uh, come into senior management and help run the company. And it, it became so it was Sony at the time. Oh, wow. The reason I went in there was because. You know, I'd sit with a, with um, the record company and, and I ask for something. They'll tell me we can't do that. And my question mm-hmm. is, why not? I wanted to learn. I knew I knew the streets. I knew how to razzle dazzle in the legal side. I knew how to operate companies, but I had never worked at a corporation and I didn't know the other side. And so yeah. I wanted to really learn the record business because I knew based on what I was seeing, we weren't really in the record business, money-wise. So yeah. I ended up uh, going into uh, Sony. They made me an offer that, um, you know, I, I actually reluctantly did it. And and within a month in there, I knew I made a mistake. Um, Why did you make a mistake? You know, um, the record business is, 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 is a very racist business, you know, uh, oh, I'm very yeah. blessed because I was able to, to maneuver. And, and a lot mm-hmm. of it has to do with me being one. I was naive and didn't care. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, um, you never miss a friend you never had. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. you know, people dealt with me because they had to, because of who I represented. Mm-hmm. But the moment I didn't have that person, they don't want to be bothered with me. It's just the nature of the business. So- were all most of the executives at the time just a lot of white guys that didn't really like what was the culture like at that time? Um, now imagine when I went to Sony, I was representing, I had been representing Clarence Avant, Taboo Records, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Puffy, Bad Boy Entertainment, Easy E, oh, wow, Bad Boy Entertainment, uh, Public Enemy, and a, a, a number, you know, a number of others, and so, um. I went in, so I went in, I was a Beverly Hills lawyer, you know, a happy-go-lucky Beverly Hills lawyer, making a lot of money, uh, more money, I considered it a lot of money, you know, based on my background, you know, <laughs> and um, yeah, I went into Sony, and I had sense enough to tell them that I would not come unless I controlled my budgets, you know, to this day, you okay. know, you, you deal with the record companies, if there there is a person of color I'd say there's a 99.9% chance they still don't control their budgets. Even today, they most likely won't control their budgets. You know, um, did you read the letter I wrote to the industry, the elephant in the room? I didn't, no. Okay, you should read that letter. Okay, that was written around the the Black Lives Movement back in 2020. So what I did, I um, basically 
sent a letter to the industry and said, you know, let's deal with the elephant in the room. Here are the problems. And then I gave them solutions, you know, what they needed to do to fix it. And, um, you know, I'm happy to say that one of the things I told them to do was that they needed to zero out all of the uh, uh, accounts for all the artists, older artists, and let them let them let them collect their royalties. Because of the way the contracts are set up, you know, there's these these artists are never going to see any money, would, would never have seen money otherwise. So they about a year later, they did do that. And they did make a lot of donations to uh, um, to uh, um, uh, black colleges. And, you know, I told them they needed to, to create some kind of executive training program because the way they have it set up is designed not for anybody of color to come in and do anything. So and and when I say that, you need to understand that you can't read a book and understand how to how the record business. You you have to actually be in it and doing it, doing deals, you know, doing business to really understand how it all works. And so if you can't get the opportunity to have one of those jobs, you're never going to learn how to do anything. So. So anyway. Um, and how was that letter received when you sent that? letter to the industry it was huge you know it was like um it was like the uh shot that was heard around the world other people in other industries started doing similar letters you know because it wasn't if my letter wasn't as much confrontational as it was how did you know here's how you fix it you know what i mean and um there were Mm -hmm. other I've, i've been told other industries did some of those same things, you know, because some of the problems and issues and solutions, it's just in a corporation, you know, it's all part of uh, the issues that, that exist at these corporations across the board. Mm -hmm. And when you started working there, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. And I'll, I'll answer. Go ahead. I was going to say, well, when you started working there, were there any things that you tried to start changing on your own that you struggled with, with changing in that culture? And now we're yeah. in a position of power. Yeah, like for instance, and I'll give you an existent, um, an example at Sony. You know, when you looked at again, I I, I went in in such a high level, I saw everything. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea was that I was going to stay there and run one of the companies, and you know, grow into all of that. And then I I grew mm-hmm. I grew into running, became president of Epic Urban. And what that meant was I had a $70 million talent budget that included Michael Jackson, Sade, uh, a little bit of everybody. And um, I'm saying that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I had a very the job was very good, but the culture was the culture sucked because the culture. Hmm. Imagine imagine an executive coming in and saying to you. Wow, I read your letter. You write really well. Oh my God. Now, if you read my resume, you know, if I went to USC and, <laughs> you know, I should be able um, to write well. But that was the harmless one. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had situations where um, I would um, go, give you an example. I, um, you know, Wu Tang, Resurrect, Rizzo? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Of course. So, they told me Staten Island was a, a rough neighborhood. and Be careful. Don't go there. I wanted to sign RZA, so I went and went to Staten Island and hung out all night long with them at a Jamaican joint. 
And I ended up telling him I'd give him a million dollars and let's start a label together. Um, I went back. I, my signing authority, I could, I could spend a million dollars without talking to anybody if I wanted to sign somebody. So, you know, I, I get back and, you know, the, 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 uh, the executives are asking me, well, wow, who is this? Man, you sure about this? And I'm like, don't worry about it. Yeah. Because you know, the way, you know, I knew the way the deal was structured, we'd get all of our money back. So the first record that comes out is Ghostface Killer. Oh, wow. We did 987,000 units the first week. What do the executives do? They, they go take RZA to dinner and tell him, you know what? If you need anything, whatever, just call us. Instead and so, of you. you know, I, I just made RZA a bunch of money. So, you know, RZA came back and told me. So I went and, you know, I told him that, you know, if you're going to undermine me like that, I can't stay here. I'm here to do business and make money. And um, they were like in business of like thinking I'm supposed to bring the stuff to them and they take it and go do whatever they want to do. And that yeah. was very disrespectful. Um, and, you know, like I said, I just that particular deal did almost a million units the first week. That's huge. That's massive. So so, so uh, I told them if they did it again. I'm out. Yeah. So. I ended up signing uh, um, another act, another deal, um, and the first record was Cameron. So Cameron's first big record was under that deal. You know, it was big. The second act under that deal was Charlie Baltimore. The first single did extremely well. We're getting ready to do another one. It's like um, these guys tell me they want a million dollars to do a video. You know, and I had my own PL. I'm like, I'm not spending that kind of money. So I go I mean, convince them to take 250. I don't think I, I got into my car before they call these executives who took them to dinner that night. And I want you to know they gave them the money. They gave them the million dollars. Well, now picture me. You know, I told them all I had was my name and reputation. And, you know, I had a I enjoyed a very good reputation then and, and a very good one now. And, you know, I wasn't going to play that kind of game with them. So I then signed another act. By the name of Genuine. No and way. So, yeah. So let me tell you the story so you'll understand why I said I definitely got to get the hell out of here. So. <laughs> Uh, an A&R guy, a white A&R guy tells me he has a friend who's an engineer. And would I do him a favor and listen to some music? So the guy comes and he's playing me all this music. And then I hear this song. So I asked the guy, I said, who is this? And he told me, you know, it was genuine. And I'm like, can you bring him in? And he just happened to be in the building with him. So he brought him in. I met him. Mm -hmm. I asked him who was his lawyer. It turned out to be a friend of mine. I called her up and said, hey, I got a gift for you. Come come see me. And her office was right up the street. She came to see me. And um, I called Business Affairs and I, I ran down a deal for them. And they said, I said, do you have a problem with this deal? They said, absolutely not. Let's do it. So then I told them they can't leave the deal. They can't leave the building. So from about three o'clock to 1230 at night, I had business affairs negotiating the deal and he signed at 1230. 
that song was Pony. Oh my God. Wow. Yes. Yes. That's a big deal. You did that in less than a day. Big deal. So here's what happens. The executives in their mind that the, the white A&R guy who asked me to talk to, to, to this, uh, um, Mm -hmm. in their mind, he was responsible for, for genuine. He felt he took the credit just because he said that. Yeah. So, 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 um, and then they started doing dumb things as if they're going to, you know, set up this whole thing with black music over at this other company. It was just a waste of money and it was so dumb. And, you know, it, it was like, it, it, I felt like I was making people hundreds of millions of dollars and they were ver- being very disrespectful and they were going to use me until they used me up and then they were going to kick me to the curb. Yeah. That's how I felt. They were using you for your reputation and for your street cred and then your exactly. ability to communicate with these artists. You know, the, one of the biggest ways to get, you know, a great talent is to have them trust you. And it seems like they trusted you as their guy. Exactly. And then these executives used that. It was like they had no, they, you know, it would be one thing if they called me up and say, Ron, let's go to dinner and let's deal with these people. But, mm-hmm. you know, they felt they didn't even have to have me there. They got what they wanted. So I, I, um, I left, you know, well, let me tell you, I stayed and made sure I learned every facet of, of, uh, Sony worldwide, you know? So I, I, you know, I, I used to take home the financials, you know, the books of Sony's books. I take them home on, on the weekend and read through them all. And so I ended up, um, after I learned everything, I took the vice chairman to the comp to, to lunch and uh, I told him, I said, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I don't feel good about myself. I don't feel how I'm being treated. And, um, you know, I, I, all I got is my name and reputation. And, and that's something, something that I needed to protect. He actually cried and tried to convince me to stay. And I just told him, I can't do it. Was there any part of you that wanted to just try to rebuild it or make some change from inside? Yeah, you know, I was able to hire my staff and, you know, since I looked at everything, I, I, I quickly saw the disparis, this disparities in uh, salaries, you know, what the pop department was being per- paid versus what the urban park department was paid. I, I went in and I changed all of that. I wow. created parity because it was just it didn't make any sense. You know, you had a, 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 a PR person working Michael Jackson, Sade, uh, uh, in the, on the urban side, getting a third of what the pop person was doing who had nothing to do. <laughs> and was that often like race related? Were a lot of people that were working in those departments black or did that yeah. weigh into it? Well, you know, the record business was set up in a way that it's always been separated. I mean... Hmm. For instance, uh, when I first got there, they would have the black the black department come in just for the black acts, and then they would dismiss them. Wow! And I yeah. stopped all of that. I'm like, wait a minute! I thought we were one company, so I stopped all of that. So everybody they were segregating had departments for different acts. Yeah, I mean, there there were there was a time in my this wasn't that long career. ago either. That this wasn't that long ago. Yeah. This was like 90s. Yeah. And um, there was a time in my career where um, 
record company just wouldn't wouldn't promote a black act pop. But all, also know that for a long time, there were people at pop stations saying, don't send a black person to my station. You know, yeah. uh, that's that's the reality. When 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 uh, the record business started, they used to call black records race records. No way. And to this day, to this day, you know, um, what do you call it? Systematic racism. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does exist. You know, it's not you know, I, I know a lot of the people. They're not racist, but. The system is just geared up, geared that way, and they're yeah. making so much money. They're not going to change it. They're going to keep doing yeah, what I, they're doing. I, there's a line in the new Elvis movie that came out, and there's a scene where Elvis is watching this incredible um, black singer performer dancing. He's like, "Oh wow, he's going to be a huge star." And his friend just goes in and says to him, "No, he's not. He's he's black. He won't he won't be a huge star." Yeah. And that uh, was real back then. Yeah. And the nineties wasn't even that long ago when you were experiencing a lot of this. Are you, are you seeing it? Has any of this like still been prevalent today? And is there anything that we can do? Oh, absolutely. To- oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Racism is an economic tool, mm-hmm. especially in the record business, you know? And, you know, I, I view, you know, it's a tool somebody can use when it, when it's handy, if, if that's what's needed to win. What do you mean by that? How can you use it to win? And what does that mean? You know, let's, let's talk about, um, in, in my business, part of the systematic racism is that it's like a country club. Mm-hmm. So you have the executives, the lawyers, the business managers, the booking agents. They're all uh, not pe- people of color. And so when a person of color comes along, they get in the clients here and they, they, they discourage them. You know, for instance, you know, I, I represented Wayne for 13 years. Mm-hmm. I'm in a lawsuit with him. You know, he's mad because I, I made him over $200 million and he, you know, and he's somebody, a, a white guy told him that they were going to kick my ass and make me repay the $20 million. And the reason is why, and there is no reason why. I did a fantastic job. He owns everything that he had. He owns his masters. He owns all of his masters. I, I mean, it, it's like an incredible deal. Um, yeah. You got him a huge and, deal. Um, no one owns their masters. <laughs> Even Taylor exactly. Swift doesn't own her masters. Oh, but wait, 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 wait. He also owned a third of Drake, a third no. of Nicki Mon- uh, and, uh, and 49% of Nicki Minaj because of my deal. Yeah. Does he still own part of Drake? He just, he sold it for a hundred million dollars. Insane. And so I, I recently sent him an email telling him it, those assets are now worth twice as much. But I told him, I told him that before I left, I sent him an email and told him that um, you don't want a knucklehead to come in here because they're going to look around and see the only place that they can get a payday is sell your masters. And sure enough, 18 day, 18 months to the day, they sold his masters. Oh wow! They did. How much did he sell his masters for? Uh, I'm told it's a hundred million dollars. Insane. Justin Timberlake, I think, just did the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, there's reasons to sell and there's reasons not to sell. You know, mm-hmm. when I structure deals, I'm focused on the structure of the deal, not the upfront money. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I'm paid differently. You know, I I, I create and build assets. I don't you know, give them away. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, there, there, there are different people who, who do it for different reasons. A lot of folks do it for estate planning. You know, so, mm-hmm. you know, when you see Springsteen or uh, um, Fleetwood Mac, all of those guys, they're all in their 70s. You know, mm-hmm. they're liquefying their estates because they're going to have to anyway. But when you have a young guy selling his, you know, I would never sell. Yeah. Um, well, if you look, especially if you look at it like an investment, like in the stock market, I like how you you have, you're 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 thinking about these creative assets in the same way that like a hedge fund manager would think about investing in stocks and companies. Well, you know, these are appreciating assets that can only get more valuable over time. It's all about the copyrights and who owns the copyrights. You want to own the master copyrights. You want to own the publishing copyrights. And what happens is the deals are structured with the record companies where you, you automatically give all of that up to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, instead of saying, I don't want as much money, but I'm holding on to this, they take the money. But, you know, also the record business is set up that the lawyers, they get paid 5% on, on the advance. So the more money they get, the bigger their, their, uh, their fees. How did you navigate that and how did that feel with someone you, you know, did such an incredible job building out the deals for someone like Wayne and then you guys had that disagreement and how are things now? Are you guys, have you mended things since then? I haven't spoken to him since the day that he fired me, oh. uh, which was September 18th, 19, I mean, 2018. Oh, that's not that long ago. Now we're in litigation and they, um, he knew I was going to sue him. So the, the lawyers jumped out there and sued me, accused me of being a thief, this, that, and the other. And, you know, it's like one of those things, I'm black, so I must be a thief. Um, of course, I filed a motion to dismiss all of their claims. The judge ruled in my favor, threw everything out. The only issue that's left was what was the reasonable value of my services. But let me show you how it works. When Wayne filed that lawsuit, saying that I was a thief and I overcharged him and this, that, and the other. It was all over the news, all over TMZ. When the judge ruled in my favor, throwing out all of those claims, of course, nobody printed that. So you still have people running around thinking that I might be a thief. Yeah, that's horrible. It's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible, especially when your reputation is so important to you like it is. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you Google me. You know, that's the only thing that you see mm-hmm. that, that's negative. And, and quite frankly, before that lawsuit, if you had Googled me, you wouldn't have seen my name. <laughs> <laughs> you, you like to keep a little profile. There's managers, lawyers out there that love having a big profile and they're always in the news. You know, you got the Jimmy Iveens of the world. You prefer to keep a lower profile? Are you saying, do I prefer a low profile? Yeah, so I was asking you. Oh, no, no, absolutely. That's, that's what I did up until uh, 2018. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had to defend myself. And that's when I, you know, I became in front of the public's eye. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, um, you know, I, 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 I made my money, went home and enjoyed my family. You know, I didn't need yeah. all the rest. And you, you came up in a very different time in the music industry where, you know, there was just so much money coming in. We didn't have streaming. So the record labels had so much more power than they do today. You know, when people were buying albums for $25, $30, a piece. Now we just get it all for free, pretty much on Spotify. Um, you know, what was what was like that transition like going from you know people buying so many albums? I remember especially too some of my mentors and when I was directing music videos, 
They were able to direct million dollar videos regularly. They were giving like half a million dollar videos to new directors. And as soon as the purchasing of albums stopped, the money at record labels like really kind of dried up a lot. And they- Oh, you know, it, the it got ugly. It got very ugly for a period of time because what you were doing, you were watching, um, you were waiting on streaming income to hit critical mass mm -hmm. or, you know, hit that point, the break even point. And then from there, that's when the money started being made. But it had to, it had to get to a certain point where you were breaking even. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the money started being made. And now. Is it close though? It's not even, it can't be close to what it used to be. There, I was just about to say they're almost there. There may be, I think they're. I want to say three billion off the high. I think it's three billion dollars more they need to to do to be able to say that they're now back doing pre-streaming uh, numbers. Oh wow, that's not bad. But all of that money is not being paid the way that it used to be paid. How so? When you stream, you stream individual songs. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, they didn't release singles. They stopped releasing singles. You had to buy the album. Mm -hmm. Now people get, you know, they can pick and choose whatever songs they want. And that hurts the songwriters and the producers because if they didn't write and produce the, the hit song, they're not making any money. Whereas if they had been on an album, they would have made the same amount of money. Yeah, the trickle-down effect, all the people that work on the albums is substantial. And then I think the marketing push to sell an album was much bigger than because putting out an album, spending the money to do an album, you know, that you would spend a lot more money on marketing. So that's why the music videos were like mini events. There were some, I think the, the uh, you know, the supposed record is Michael Jackson's video for Scream was apparently like six or $7 million uh, when Michael Jackson did Scream with Mark Romanek. I can tell you, we would sit in finance meetings and the chairman of the company would love to point out how, uh, he was a guitar player, Joe Satchiani. He would put out a record, and on that PL, we made more money on him than we made on Michael Jackson because <laughs> of the spend. Because they were spending <laughs> so much money on Jackson. Insane. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the events, the music, the music videos were all so expensive. I know, I think he hired Scorsese to do one of his music videos. And it was like five or six million dollars. They were like constantly like mini movies. <laughs> you know, but but picture thriller, fifty million units, and then an artist chasing that, chasing to, to duplicate that. Yeah, that's just a freak of nature that will never happen again. But he was chasing that. Mm -hmm. so Do you think we'll ever have? Yeah, we'll never have an artist like like Michael again, probably. No, no, not at all. Yeah, insane. I remember I was watching a YouTube video the other day of Michael Jackson, the first time ever that the Super Bowl did a halftime show. Before then, they didn't really have you know halftime shows at the Super Bowl that were they weren't that popular. Like it wasn't a main event, and Michael Jackson was the first artist to really make it huge. Like he went on stage and the people went nuts. They forgot there was a football game. Everything that he did was an event. And the thing about Michael, he transcended every line, every color. You'd go to with him anywhere in the world and they knew him. And he could put, mm -hmm. if he put on a concert, 
it would sell out, you know, in those soccer stadiums, you know, where they yeah. got 80, 100,000 people. Clearly. Yeah, he just knew he just knew it. He commanded such a power and he didn't even need a lot of stage direction or art direction. It was just him on stage and he could do whatever he wanted. No, he knew exactly what he wanted. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he was in charge. Love that. How was it working? What was it like working with him? Did you do some deals with him? You know, candidly, I didn't spend a lot of time with him. And the reason I didn't spend a lot of time with him was because I knew we weren't getting the record. <laughs> so I focused on where I could get records. They asked yeah. me that. You know, how come you're not spending more time? And I'm like, because it's a waste of time because we're not going to get a record. Why did you think you weren't going to get a record? You know, when you're, when you're looking for perfection, mm -hmm. you're never done. And so I had a company to run, so I ran the company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I knew when he was ready, I'd get a record. There was nothing you could say or do that was going to get him to speed up and make that record. When you worked with artists, do you think, how did you go about, like, what was it about an artist that let, let you think that they were going to be a big hit? Like spotting talent, how do you go about spotting talent? And when you see someone like Eze, e was that before he was part of NWA or at what point did you start no, working with I represented him afterwards. Or I represented him, you know, with the Bone Thugs and Harmony, that big record mm -hmm. Crossroads. Mm -hmm. Those guys don't like me to this to this day because I did their contracts. You know, I did contracts <laughs> on behalf of these. Um, you know, when you meet people, and again, my being a having that musical background, you know when somebody is. I can tell when somebody is serious about their craft, mm -hmm. and when I meet a guy, and and uh, you know, I want to know whether or not he can go to distance. Because most mm -hmm. artists explode. Their careers go down the tube for a variety of reasons. And um, I look to make sure that those kind of things aren't going to happen. I look at the artist's uh, work ethic. I look to see whether or not they're writing their own songs. Um, I look to see if they have a vision. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just the song. It's, it's like you got to turn that song into a career. So you look for people that are serious about their craft, serious about um, wanting to be a star and, they, and not focused on the money. When I would run across somebody to come to me for representation and they were only focused on the money, I didn't want to represent them because I knew that they would take anything and yeah. we, we, we wouldn't be able to build anything. But, you know, you take somebody like Wayne. I loved Wayne because he was pure. Mm -hmm. And that's my, my definition of an of a, a artist who only cares about his music yeah, and, and is not worried about the money. And, um, and it's clear they love doing what they do. Yeah. Some say Wayne is one of the most gifted rappers of all time. You know, he's super talented. I can tell you that he is extremely talented and extremely bright. Mm -hmm. I would say to you, but for the extracurricular activities, mm -hmm. he'd be a lot bigger. A mentor of mine, uh, Anthony Mandler, directed his a couple of his videos. He did one called uh, How to Love with Wayne a while ago. Mm -hmm. He did a few of his videos with him. Like I said, he's a talent. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a beast, you know, yeah. a real talent. How do you think the music industry has changed where we're seeing 
a lot of artists basically create empires like you see you know dre jay-z p diddy that you you've worked with a lot of them are building these massive businesses inside and outside of music owning their own labels uh and could that have happened in the 90s and has that changed in a way that makes it easier for them today to do that again it goes back to how you structure the deal i um I represented Dre for a moment back then, and uh, it was all about structuring the deal and ownership. When I when I got involved with Puffy, he was being paid a twenty eight percent royalty. I restructured the deal and, and fixed it so that he owned half the company. I made him yeah. retroactively put Biggie into the deal, and I and I and I made him allow Puffy to be able to buy buy them instead of them just having an automatic put to buy. That was sort of the beginning of when folks started focusing in on ownership and understanding what it really means because they were successful and they saw some real money. I always say that, especially with um, people of color, probably 95% of them aren't in the real record business because they're getting paid a royalty that never will show any money, you know? Or, really? And or they don't understand that, that the record business is the world and not just the United States. Well, I think there weren't enough people like you guiding them and shepherding them and helping them make those deals. There weren't enough people maybe like yourself that were guiding those decisions. You know, uh, not really. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm on my, I was on my own. I knew if I could build, if I could, I was more interested in a monthly check and not the upfront check. I was mm-hmm. more interested in creating like a new, an annuity so that I always had business. You know, you build a business, it just creates more business for you, more business mm-hmm. for you. And I didn't, I didn't try to represent everybody in the world. I, I, you know, I picked and choose. And then, you know, I spent time um, involved, hands-on with, with a variety of everything, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. the person's career. I, I become the business side you know, I create an environment so the art, so the client artist can do do their thing, uh, what they do best, and then I I, I handle everything else, all of the business side, uh, make and make the majority of the decisions because, you know, I'd go to the artist and I, I would tell an artist that the chairman of the company, mm-hmm. and they they're the ones that make the big decision, make the big you know make big decisions because it affects their lives. And I would say nine times out of 10, they'd ask me, what would you do? Nine times out of 10, they would, would do what I say. And, you know, like I said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. It, it worked most of the time. Mm-hmm. It usually worked until the artist wanted to go in the room and make the deal. <laughs> and that's, that would always be the beginning of the end. That's when it would turn into a mess. Because they would be in the room and they have no idea what's being said. And then the record company start, starts taking advantage of it. In my case, they told Wayne that I was too difficult to deal with. You know, mind you, no I probably, I probably over over my lifetime at Universal probably did in excess of eight hundred million dollars worth of deals, and um, um, you know, it, it, but all of a sudden I'm too difficult to deal with, and that's only because <laughs> I sued them. You know, uh, on behalf of my client, music attorney, music industry attorneys don't. It's like biting the hand that feeds you. You sued Universal. I sued Universal. For what? Well, cash money in Universal 
was not paying Wayne on, on his Drake masters. Everybody thought it was about his, his career because he was due $8 million mm-hmm. for his album. But it, but it was more about the fact that we had not been paid on all of that success for Nikki and, uh, and Drake. And mm-hmm. when we settled, and of course, you know, Universal's the deep pocket. They wrote the checks. I would say to you that Wayne sold his masters for $100 million. I would tell you that the first checks that he got was way up there. <laughs> Bigger than that. <laughs> and that's that that's what that lawsuit was about. And I and I didn't have a choice. I begged them. I took the business affairs guy to breakfast and begged them, told them how to settle the thing. Begged mm-hmm. them and said, Don't make me do this, but I'm gonna have to do it. And yeah. so, you know, after a year, I went ahead and filed a lawsuit. I didn't have a choice. If I didn't do it, Wayne would have found somebody else to do it. Yeah, well, you really look after your artists, and it seems like you look at it more like a corporation and how you could make proper deal structures for a lot of these people that don't have experience doing that. So what you should understand, the record business is is a business. You know, an artist walking around, there are multiple corporations. You know, I set up probably 10 different corporations for Wayne. You know, he has a sports business. He has merchandising business, publishing business, joint ventures here and there. It's all about once a, once a guy gets a hit record, then you start exploiting all avenues. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, 5% lawyer is like waiting on somebody to bring him the deal for him to negotiate. I go out and find deals and I create deals uh, for clients. And that's what I did. And because of my background, I could see things that probably the average lawyer couldn't see mm-hmm. because again, you know, I was a manager operator and, and, you know, ran a division at a, at the highest level. It's own. Well, these are all incredible lessons for anybody in any area of business. I'd love to hear a little bit before I let you go about digital disruption, what you're doing now uh, and, and how we could, and how can we maybe work towards more, less systemic racism in the music industry and, you know, in the world and what can we do to mitigate that as much as we can and try to help give some of those kids that are in Watts South central a chance at, you know, building careers like you have or becoming the artists that they want to, they want to be. There's two things that, that people want. Nobody want donations anymore. They need capital and opportunity. You know, what I did, I, you know, I went out uh, and raised some money on wall street and created my own opportunity because the record company would never do that with me, notwithstanding my back. And, you know, basically, I'm doing what I told the record companies they should do. I told the record companies they should put up some money and invest in in, in minority-owned businesses, in the entertainment business, so that people could grow and learn the business. Um, And at the same time... You think that they would, given the fact that most of their highest-earning talent were from minority communities... And you think they would invest the money into those infrastructures? Didn't, didn't happen. So I know based on the internet, the internet has revolutionized the record business. Let me give you an example. When I worked at Sony, a third of the employees worked in distribution. Now with digital disruption, I have a software program that I can distribute my records around the world. I don't need a ton of individuals to do my distribution. Mm-hmm. 
Then on, on the accounting side, when I worked at Sony, there were three tall buildings across the street filled with accountants. <laughs> I now use a software program that in two hours, they spit out all of my accounts. <laughs> I now use a program that um, if the artist wants to know what's going on anywhere, they can, they can log in and see how their record's doing, see how much money is being made, see, see, excuse me, see when the money is coming. And then the last thing I do, I turn, I, I, I turn the business upside down. I don't use their business model. I use my business model. My business model, the record company's business model is that they give you some money. They pay you a royalty. Mm-hmm. That royalty might represent 15% of the income. And then they charge every expense against that 15%. So therefore, yeah. the artist is never going to see any money. And they, and they, and they, yeah, they pay, pay everything a, back and they pay twice a year. Insane. Okay. And then in the contract, there's all different ways to further reduce the, the royalty. <laughs> even, the, even the music videos, I think they were paying, the artists had to pay back if, you know, if the label put exactly. up a million bucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The artist, the, the, the contract says that uh, they'll treat a hundred, you know, 75 to $150,000 as a, a marketing expense, but any, any, any expense, over that, they charge against the artist only. In in forty year, over forty years, I've only seen a royalty check with a statement probably five times for an artist in my lifetime. So my business model, digital disruptions business model, is if I'm willing to invest in the artist, then we're partners. We co-own the masters together. We co-own the uh, uh, publishing together. My business model says income, expenses, profits. And whatever those profits are, that's what we split. So I now am paying the artists as if they're the record company because they're my partner. Now, what I'm doing, you know, in terms of um, when you do do the economics, what I'm really doing is it's just a sophisticated way of building up a master catalog and a publishing catalog, which I'm going to flip in five years. Uh, and my investors and I are going to make a shitload of money. Excuse my French. <laughs> you can swear if you want. I love that. So how would you describe digital disruption? Is it like a music platform meets a record label? How would you describe it and what it does? Ultimately, my first signs of success, everybody's going to run to me <laughs> because they're all going to f- figure out that they they're dealing with somebody that's honest. I'm paying them monthly. Everything is transparent. And they're being paid like the record company, which means they're going to see a lot more money than they've ever seen in their lives. So, you know, ultimately, to me, digital disruption becomes a movement. But for my investors, you know, you, you're watching these private equity guys go out and throw all this crazy money at these, at these catalogs, not understanding that it has a lot to do with how that catalog is utilized over time. Mm-hmm. So you can't really project out the kind of numbers that they think is going to happen. Yeah. But for me, you know, just by way of example, I sign an artist and I'm only spending $30,000, but it may translate into hundreds of millions of dollars because one hit and it makes all of the masters worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So it's, and, and, the idea of getting a hit has more to do with starting as, you know, it starts and stops with the music. 
Mm-hmm. So it's really about how you pick, you know, the talent that you pick. And, you know, once once you get a hit, all the talent comes to you. You know, I have yeah. not made any public announcements about digital disruption yet. And it's, oh, you it's, haven't? Not yet. I, and the reason I haven't is because, you know, I'm, I'm making sure that all the pieces are straight together. And um, um, I've got a couple of records coming that I feel real good about. Love that. And I, I'm feeling that I should, you know, make that announcement, you know, uh, as the record is speaking for digital disruption. I love that. You must feel a new sense of energy, you know, being able to just have do things the way you want to do them. I am a kid in a candy store. And it's like when I went to Sony, I told him, give me a checkbook <laughs> and leave me alone. OK, because mm-hmm. I knew if I had a checkbook, I could I could sign anybody because, you know, I know how to talk to artists. I know how how to give them comfort mm-hmm. and give them the understanding that they'll be OK. So all I needed was a checkbook. So I have a checkbook now. So um, I don't have to go, you know, if I want to sign somebody for over a million dollars, I can do that now. Yeah, if you find someone who's special. Now, needless to say, that's not that's not my business model. My business model is is to buy for as cheap as, you know, get it for as cheap as possible and mm-hmm. get, get control of, of as many copyrights as possible. You know, I've signed deals for 10 grand. You know, I, I've signed deals thus far for like a hundred grand, you know, it just depends on what it is. And, but the return on that money is crazy. Hmm. And I don't have to, I don't have to get all of them right. Yeah. As long as I get my share, which, you know, I have a history of, I'm going to make the company worth a ton of money in the next five years. Over the next five years, if I were a betting man, I, I'll end up with, uh, Couple of thousand, a couple of thousand of masters, a couple of thousand of, of uh, uh, copy uh, publishing copyrights. That's throwing off a significant amount of money every month. Well, what's interesting, I've never heard someone use a business model that typically you know you use in like private equity or venture capital or um, hedge funds. And you seems like you're running this new mus- music concept, like you're running a venture fund. You know, raising money from Wall Street. It's a sophisticated way of acquiring, building, and selling catalogs. Mm-hmm. Because what happens, like I said, it's it, once you have some success, everybody comes to you. And then you just sit back and pick and choose what you want. And mm-hmm. But again, what folks don't understand is like the best money is catching mm-hmm. the artist's first three albums. That's where the best money is. Mm-hmm. If you can, instead of spending $200 million and trying to figure out how you're going to justify it, you know, in terms of a, a return, just think about if somebody's spending all of $50,000 and the guy has a number one hit around the world. That's crazy money yeah. based on a $50,000 investment. That's insane. Yeah. My, my investment bankers told me ultimately, they said, Ron, you're selling you. You're selling your, 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 your abilities as a manager. That's what mm-hmm. people are buying. And so I never had thought about it in those terms. And then when, when mm-hmm. I, I hadn't even bothered to go look at what all I had done over my life until we started doing <laughs> this. Uh, you, you know, when you, 
you're working and you're in the trenches, you're just doing, you know? Yeah. But, you know, I, I came to understand uh, Wall Street, private equity. And ultimately, you know, when somebody wants to give money to somebody to invest, they're investing in that person. Is in, They're investing in the concept, but they're also investing in that person. You know, so I, I've... Um, I have a track record showing that I can do this in my, with my eyes closed. I just needed a checkbook. <laughs> well, it's, and it's about trusting the person, the story, and your story, you know, to believe, listening to your story, trusting you, your reputation. And it seems like what worked for you in the 90s and 2000s in your career was getting these artists to trust you and believe in, that you could really, you know, help them in a way that they weren't able to do before. And, and I got to tell you, the internet has made, the record business even more efficient because now you can you you can go online and you can look at data and tell you where you need to spend the money where the money's working right where it's not working right so it's much more efficient back in the day you just threw money at something and hoped and prayed now now mm -hmm. you can tell so which means you even spend less money i was i was yeah. pleasantly surprised you know i told you the story of the guy wanting a million dollars I just did a, 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 a video for like 15 grand, but that also <laughs> included a photo shoot. <laughs> it, it included content. It included a ton of stuff. This is why I don't direct music videos anymore. This is why I'm out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I did a day shoot on another artist. We did nine different videos. Insane. And, you know, again, didn't cost that much money you know, when you start. You can shoot a video on your phone now, then it would be just as successful because if the artist is great and the song is great, you know, people just want to see good content. And if you can make good content on your iPhone, people want to consume it. It starts and stops with the music. You know, I don't care what you mm -hmm. do, you still need a hit record. And, you know, yeah. if you got the hit record and you have all of these other things that we're talking about, it's more probable than not that you're going to make some money. If you sign the mm -hmm. right acts. So for me, I'm a uh, a music guy, but I'm also, like I said, I, I was a drummer. So when I drummed, I played everything from Jimi Hendrix to Led Zeppelin to Sly and Family Stone to to James Brown. You know, I just love mm -hmm. music. I now I now sign whatever I love. You know, it, it, and it has nothing to do with whether it's a rap, urban, blah blah blah. I just sign whatever I think will work. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, and again, when I worked at Sony, I didn't work, you know, in running the, the company. You know, we had Celine Dion. We had, you know, we had all of these different, mm -hmm. you know. And um, for me, you know, it's all about the music. And I also know that the music business is a worldwide business. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things you're looking for Global. is talent mm -hmm. that might transcend other other countries. Countries, Yeah. yeah. And you're seeing that with Latin American artists now, where we're seeing artists from South America or Latin America exploding in America, you know, um, and, and vice versa. So finding someone that could be global. The point that you made just a second ago, I think is super interesting, is that today we have the ability to look at the algorithms and on Spotify and all the data on the internet and see what kind of music people are gravitating towards or how many times someone maybe listened to a song or, you know, the types of music or the genres of music that people are listening to. And you have all this data and you can make informed decisions about types of artists to sign or exactly. types of music to make uh, based on that. Is that changing the way you're looking at things? You know, um, 
I had to do a deep dive, fast learn because I, I you know, I told you I, I wasn't, you couldn't find me on the internet and I, mm-hmm. I didn't do social media. And I, I quite frankly didn't understand the, the importance of social media. I now, I do now, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really factored it in because I didn't do social media. But once I, once I did the deep dive and came to understand it, I rearranged my staff. I have digital marketing people more so than, than the, the, the normal marketing person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because that's yeah. where it is. It's, it's all, a, I have a kid. All he does is, is you know, go, you know he, he's researching, looking at who's, who, what's up and coming, what's streaming, where, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, because my, my, my goal is to catch the artists. You know, I'm like a speedboat. The record company's like an mm-hmm. aircraft carrier. You know, yeah. I can get the artist first, and if I can get in there, I can close first. Then I got it without having to spend all the money that they're going to spend. Yeah, I think if you look at the new mediums too, you're going to see artists that are exploding from TikTok, or an artist that maybe you know, like look at Justin Bieber got his start on YouTube and he got found by Scooter Braun. You know, we'll see artists emerge on these different social media platforms like TikTok yeah. or Instagram and blow up. It makes your job a lot easier. Because, you know, you, you, you mm-hmm. can narrow down what, what you like and, you can you know, you can pinpoint it and go to them right away. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, it, it, it's, um, you know, you can find a hit from anywhere. It's like mm-hmm. you don't care where the hit comes from as long as you find it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's tip, TikTok or, or whatever, you know, we're scouring the land for, for a hit. I love what you said just before we got into this topic about how you wanted the record labels to take some money and reinvest it back into minority communities. Is there anything that we could do today to try to revitalize or inspire people in some of these minority communities? Or is there anything that you're working on now to do that? You know, um, I will tell you, uh, I'm working, I'm trying to push Sony to create a fund to help, um, the heirs of all of the black artists that were taken advantage of way back when Hmm. the worst part about this whole thing is the people who got hurt the worst were never taken care of. You know, nothing's been done for them. You know, uh, in my mind, the record companies are basically window, did window dressing say, great. I I donated this money. What's important is, is, is to figure out a way to create opportunities whether it's you know folks being able to, to go to school, programs where they can go learn learn a trade, those are the things that need need to start happening in in, in the community, and you know mm-hmm. and, and also you know I know I know I, I know guys who have adopted schools, and they've adopted them because they realize you can't just jump in and jump out, you know if you go in you need to to catch them when they're young and and stay with them all the way through. Um, yeah, I think we need to see more of that. If people are going to put up money and want to help, they should be adopting all of these schools. They should be helping to create these after school programs, you know, something for the kids to go do other than hang out on the streets. Mm-hmm. That's what's needed. I mean, for me, I knew the only way I was going to get out of the hood was to go to school. Yeah. You know, so, um, I didn't know how I was going to pay for it, <laughs> but I just decided <laughs> I was going, you know? And uh, you're going to figure it out. Yeah. When I when I decided to go to law school, I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. But at the time I was working for the Internal Revenue. Um, I, I want to tell you a story, too, so you'll understand 
the, how deep all of this really is. So um, I got a job uh, working for the Internal Revenue while I was at Cal State Northridge before I transferred to UCLA. And so I was really good at it. I ended up being assigned to high net worth individuals and their tax returns. So I was in amazement to see the amount of money somebody was making. And I had never heard of that job before. <laughs> I, I mean, and not one time, I mean, multiple times, you know, mm. I was blessed because I knew when I decided to go to law school and I hated school, by the way. So I actually graduated early. So I graduated in December of 74. I mean, I mean, I finished my credits. I, I walked in June of 75. I want you to know that I started law school with 13 other underprivileged kids. Um, because I graduate, I mean, finished school early, I was able to work full time for the internal revenue from January to the day before I started school. And I moved home. It was the only time I ever moved home in my life. And that was to save money for law school. I want you to know my first week of school, they have this thing where the teacher tells you, the professor tells you, look to the left, look to the right. A year from now, one of you won't be here. But this guy went on to say that black people did not know how to write. Me being me, I raised my hand and said, can you tell me how I graduated with honors from UCLA? <laughs> Pissed him off. Um, this guy was also the dean of students. And he was in charge of financial aid. And this guy, some kind of way, those 13 underprivileged kids didn't get their financial aid until January. Oh, wow. By then, they had flunked out nine of the kids. Insane. That's reality. Now, here's the kicker. I wouldn't talk to SC for years. A couple of years ago, they started talking to me. And then I, I finally said, you know, for students, I would do something. And then mm -hmm. um, they wanted to honor me. And so... I went and, 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 you know, gave a speech and basically said, this is so funny. I've gone from you trying to flunk me out to honoring me. <laughs> and, and by the way, this is the first time I've ever stepped foot in this law school since the day I turned in my cap and gown. True story. Oh, wow. I want you to know that, that um, somebody within the administration pulled me to the side and told me that they really, they did it on purpose. Really? That there was an, they, there was an organization called Legion Lex with a bunch of uh, alumni who did not want us there. Oh, wow. And they're the ones who insisted, and, and that guy that flunked me, that, that guy, yeah. Insane. So I, you know, after all of these years, I don't have to guess anymore, you know? You but, knew, you knew, you, you know now. Yeah, but and I'm telling you this story to tell you, you know, how how uh, lives are affected mm -hmm. when people do stuff like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then you, you, you um, with all of the incarceration, 
it doesn't affect that life of the guy that's in jail. It affects his family and everybody else. The trickle down effect. Yeah. So it's like so many things working against people that you have to figure out a way to create opportunities so that they can figure out a way to get out of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As opposed to somebody yeah. saying, here's a donation. That just puts a Band-Aid on the problem until the donation goes away. Well, anyone who says that racism doesn't exist in an institutional level like that doesn't know what they're talking about when you see that there's people literally putting their hand down and forcing people to not make it through those through school, yeah. forcing them to flunk out because they just don't want them to be there. Well, you know, I, I wanted to tell you that story because it's a true story. Mm-hmm. This just happened in April when I found out that that uh, confirmed what I knew in my heart. But I couldn't, you know, I couldn't prove it. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I know what happened. And, uh, you know, my thing is they ruined the lives of nine people. Insane, yeah. And didn't care. So here's, here's, so I'm bringing it all the way home. That's the record business. The people at these companies don't care. So they don't look at these artists as people. You know, they look, them, they look at the people as numbers they get. They get what they can get out of them, use them till they use them up, and then they don't have time to talk to them anymore. Hmm. And that's 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 the ugliness of the record business. Has it gotten better at all? No, no, no. There's a country club. Everybody's eating. Ain't nobody trying to change anything. No. And you know, I'm I'm a freak of nature. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a guy that Love that. that was able to, uh, notwithstanding all the BS, I was able to, you know prosper and do well and represent and do some really big deals. But, you know, that's not the norm, you know, meaning you have minorities working in the legal department, but you don't have it on the other side. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult because you can't create the relationships that are needed to be able to will and deal unless you have, you know, some big clients. Speaking of what you just said about how that that's how the record labels were running, thinking of these people not like, you know, real people. They were thinking of them just like, you know, businesses that they could make money off of. Do you think there was a sense of exploiting some of these groups like NWA and some of these black artists and exploiting them for that story that they had using maybe these executives were using them and exploiting them to tell that story because they knew it would make money? Yeah, it's all it's all about making money. You know, it's like to this day, the record company gets happy when a rap artist goes to jail because they know when they come out, they're going to be even bigger and they're going to be able to sell a bunch of records. Yeah. Insane. That's that's the reality. Mm-hmm. My, my issue is treat people like you would want to be treated, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, for my company, Digital Disruption, I'm literally telling somebody, I'm not trying to rip you off. I'm trying to help you build some equity. Mm-hmm. And you have value that you will have something to sell or or continue making money down the line. That's why my business model yeah. is the way it is. And I'm hoping that I force the record companies to follow suit. Well, I think that's the way that we're going to make change in the record industry and you know try to even the playing field there for people. Thank you so much for your time that you've given us today. And there's so many amazing insights that you've been able to provide. And you know, I can't wait for people to learn more about digital disruption. All right. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to have this conversation with you guys. 
No, you're amazing, man. Thank you so much. Your, your story is legendary and, you know, learned so much from you. So I can't wait to learn more. And uh, you got to keep us posted on how digital disruption goes. And we'll have you on again to talk more about it. Sounds good. You take care. Bye-bye.